Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are going to continue in Revelation 14 today, so you can turn there. The portion of Revelation 14 that we began looking at last week had a series of angels making declarations to the people who are still left on planet Earth. And so we will begin reading at verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. That's what we concentrated on last week. So the new information for this week starts at verse 8. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations Drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. When we get to chapter 17 and chapter 18, we're going to see a dramatic expansion on this comment. In fact, this declaration by the angel is really just a precursor, a foreshadow of what's about to come in chapters 17 and 18. And we're going to read a whole lot about the fall of Babylon. So I'm not going to comment on it very extensively here because we're going to have a couple of weeks of talking about Babylon. But suffice it to say that prophetically speaking, Babylon not only refers to a literal city, which is actually in the Middle East in history, in what we know these days as Iraq, but it also refers to a religious system, it refers to a political system, it refers to this world system that is all stemming from the evil character of historic Babylon. And we're going to see that fleshed out in chapter 17 and 18. When we're told that Babylon led all the nations into fornication, this is obviously a spiritual comment by the angel. It's a reference to the worship of other gods. And the worship of other gods besides Yahweh is an international affair these days. Again, the only God who actually is the maker of heaven and earth began by declaring, I am because I am. And then he told his people, Israel, you'll have no other gods before me. The God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, defines himself as a jealous God. 
And by that, he means that he expects his people to be devoted to him and not any other gods. And that's why in the Old Testament, the worship of any other foreign god is referred to as harlotry. Because any man knows, any married man knows, even any unmarried man knows, that there's really nothing that a woman can do to destroy the relationship between the two of you that is as bad as harlotry. Not just chasing other lovers, but then doing it professionally. I mean, if I know that, if I could figure that out, and everybody in the room is nodding at me as I say it, if we could figure it out, God knows it. And so God specifically chose the language of harlotry to describe how he feels about his people whom he is jealous over when they chase after other gods, foreign gods, unknown gods, gods that they create with their own hands out of wood and metal and then bow themselves down to it. Well, God compares that to the complete destruction of the intimacy between him and his people. And so he calls it fornication. And so we're talking about, obviously, a spiritual fornication, but we're never really surprised to see this spiritual fornication accompanied by a very literal immorality. I have said several times through the years that one of the chief demonstrations that God is punishing a nation is that he reserves himself from them. He takes his hand off them and allows them to chase after their own sinful way. And we're seeing that in modern America. Once we took the Bible out of schools, once we took prayer out of football games and gatherings, once we erased the idea of God from our social consciousness, did we all collectively get better? No, of course, we all continue to slide into the immorality that we see everywhere, the things that are chief in our society right now, the things that our so-called leaders are arguing most vociferously for in Washington are the very things that the Bible says are abominable. And so that immorality, that literal immorality that is international, is the result of this spirit of Babylon that has overtaken the nations, which is why the angel can declare fallen Babylon is also the very influence that caused the nations to drink the wine of the passion of her immorality. Because once God takes his hand off of sinful people, especially sinful people who are attempting to engage in self-governance, whether we're talking about national self-governance or whether we're talking about individual self-governance, if God is not leading you, guiding you by the hand in the way that you should go, you will most naturally gravitate toward all the things that he is most adamantly against. That is our human nature. That's why all of biblical systematic theology needs to start with the notion that human beings are depraved. 
so desperately depraved that without God, they're incapable of being not only holy, but they're not even capable of being moral, especially if the standard of morality is the standard that God himself has laid out. And Babylon, historically, is the source of so much mystery religion and so much immorality that has run rampant again through all the nations that it is a cry of jubilation, an announcement of good things to come to say that Babylon has fallen, but then Babylon is also defined as she who makes the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And all you got to do is look at the world and you can see that that is absolutely true. So like I said, in chapter 17 and 18, we're going to look at that in greater detail. So let's move on from there to verse 9. And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Okay, so let's talk about that for a moment because there are so many implications, theological implications in what the angel is announcing here. The first most obvious and very debated thing is that this angel is announcing eternal conscious punishment for all of the enemies of God. Now, there are people who just don't like that idea. Depending on your conception of God, depending on who you think God is and what God is like, there are people who have difficulty with the idea, especially if you start with God is love and only love and all the time love then you can extrapolate from there and say, well, if he is an all-loving and only loving God, then he could never be happy in his heaven if he knew that anybody anywhere was suffering. And so there's where you get the idea of universal atonement. The Catholic Church believes in universal atonement to such a degree that they say that Satan himself will one day be redeemed so that the whole of God's universe will someday all be restored back to God. That's why the idea that even sinners who die get a second chance and get to go to purgatory for a while, where they get to purge their own sins, because apparently the death of Christ was not sufficient to save whoever God wants to save, especially if you start with the idea that salvation is a result of works, and then you add God is all love, and then God wants everybody restored to him, 
purgatory is a natural result. The only problem with purgatory, by the way, is that you don't find that anywhere in the Bible. You find nothing like that. Instead, what you find is statements like what we just read, that the enemies of God are going to be punished forever and forever. And that's a hard one for us to grasp. It's hard for us to think first of eternal life. Any less eternal punishment? Conscious eternal punishment? The point of that word conscious is to say it's punishment that lasts forever and you're going to know it. And you're going to know that you're being punished forever. The first punishment is being sent away from God's presence out of the holiness, out of the joy of God himself and then cast into places that even Jesus talked about like everlasting darkness which he describes as where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, that doesn't sound good. He asks the Pharisees, how are you going to escape the fires of hell where the worm never sleeps and the fires never quenched? And that's Jesus talking. And I assume he would know. And he talked about the eternal punishment to come. He said, don't fear men who can only destroy the body, fear God who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. In fact, turn to Matthew 25 for just a moment. Because even Jesus described this punishment as being eternal conscious punishment. I'm going to start reading at verse 41 of Matthew 25. This is Jesus talking about the separation of the sheep and the goats. He's got the sheep on his right hand, the goats on the left. It's the gathering and the judgment of the nations where he said to the ones on his left, I was hungry or I was naked or I was in prison. You never came and saw me. You never gave me anything. And they're going to say, when did we ever see you hungry or naked? Or He's going to say, if you did this to the least of these, my brethren, you did it also to me. So that's the context that he's speaking within. Starting at verse 41, he says, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, there's the first bit of bad news. How long has Satan been direct enemy to God? That's a long time. And God has designated a punishment appropriate for Satan himself. And we would all agree and go, yeah, you go, God. Definitely get Satan and his angels, get all those demons. Yes, absolutely. Put them in eternal punishment. Yes, absolutely. Here's Jesus saying that humans are also going to go to a punishment that was originally designed For Satan and his angels. Well, that's not good. Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and then did not take care of you? 
And then he will answer them and say, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Importantly, he uses the word eternal twice and uses the exact same Greek word both times. Ahionios is the word that is translated eternal. And when we read about eternal salvation, when we read about eternal life, we grasp that and say, yes, oh good, ever living in the presence of God, ever, forever. No death, no end to it, ever. He used that exact same word to describe the exact same circumstance, except that it's completely 180 degrees going the opposite way. Instead of eternal life, it is eternal punishment. And again, that's Jesus talking. He would know. So this idea of eternal conscious punishment by God is announced by Jesus. It's announced by this angel and knowing that there is this separation that God is making between those who are eternally his and those who are eternally his enemies. An angel comes and announces it and says, here is the perseverance of the saints. I guess it's worth mentioning that if you know the five tulip doctrines, the fifth of them is the perseverance of the saints, which just makes sense. It's just rational. It's just logical. If you are being preserved, if you are continuing in the faith that God himself gave you, if you repented because God himself gave you the gift of repentance, if you are indeed saved by an absolutely sovereign God who's sitting on his throne doing whatever seems good to him, then you cannot fall away because it's not your power, your strength, or your ability that's got you saved or keeps you saved. It is God's eternal sovereign power that both saved you and is keeping you saved and provided for you the repentance necessary for your salvation, and provided for you the faith that is necessary for your righteousness and your eternal salvation. So if that's the case, then we can say confidently that those people who belong to God are going to persevere in the faith. We're not going to fall away. However, if you happen to be on the planet... At this moment in time that we're reading about right now, where there's this kind of death and bloodshed, where there's this kind of defiance of God, and where there is this kind of open rebellion happening on the planet, and then people are lining up to take the mark of the beast in their forehead or their right hand, without which they can't buy or sell, it's going to be really hard, if you're still on the planet, to resist all that. Which is why in a moment we're going to hear the angel say, and you're blessed if you die in the midst of that. So just like the gospels say over and over, we're not to love our lives. We're to lay down our lives. We're to take up our cross daily. We're to be willing to die for what it is that we believe. And so this is the perseverance of the saints. 
It's going to be very hard in that environment. It's going to be very difficult when you're surrounded by so many enemies to continue your testimony of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now we have to talk about that phrase specifically. We, Gentile Christians, were we at Mount Sinai? No. No. Were we ever technically under the law before we were under the new covenant? No. No. Who was? The Jews were. They were actually at Mount Sinai. They were actually required to keep 613 ordinances of the law. The Ten Commandments formed a covenant between God and Israel. Go back and look at the language. The language of covenant permeates that deal between God and Israel. And in fact, the Ten Commandments are referred to as the tables of the covenant. The words that are written on the tables of stone are called the words of the covenant. And then they were put in a box called the Ark of the Covenant. Are you, are you getting a feel for this? Because God was forming a covenant with the people at Mount Sinai who are Israel. We Gentiles weren't there, weren't part of it. So who is this angel referring to when he defines them by the specifics of you keep the commandments of God and Jesus Christ? Well, he's obviously talking about the Jews who are still left on the planet, who are making their way towards the kingdom to come. This is not a reference to the church. This is not a reference to Gentiles. It is obviously a reference to the Israelites who are still being preserved on the planet. But even as they're there following the commandments of God, following after their faith in Christ Jesus, these converted Jews are going to be hated by all the nations around them. Therefore, pressure's on. And it's going to be really hard to maintain your witness given how bad the world's going to be. Here, I'll put it this way. Is it tough to be a Christian in the world right now? Yes. Yeah, that's nothing. It's nothing compared to what's coming especially if you're a converted Jew, and so there's hatred for the Jews, and then there's hatred for the Christians, and they're going to absorb all that hatred. So the tendency is going to be to want to say, no, no, I'm not that. Instead, what they're told here is to persevere because they are the saints. They are the elect of God. They are the chosen of God. They are the ones who are given the spirit of God. They are the people who God calls hagios. That's a word that is translated holy. They are the people who are the holy ones of God, set apart by God. Therefore, they are told to persevere despite the difficulties that they are going to encounter. Difficulties unlike what we've gone through, because they're living in a time that Jesus said is unlike any time that's ever been. So pressure's going to be on them to recant. Go take the mark. Go along to get along. Little pinch of incense. Bow the knee. Just admit that you prefer the idol that's in the temple now over the real God. And there's going to be so much pressure on them 
that the tendency is going to be to want to fold, to say, just stop hurting me. So the angel announces, first off, everybody who takes the mark, because that's going to be the temptation, just take the mark, just get along. Everybody who takes the mark ends up eternally tormented, and the smoke of their torment is a result of the wrath of God that is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. John is just using extra words to try to explain how bad the wrath of God actually is. Unmixed. It's not diluted. It's not watered down. It is the full weight of God's anger being poured out on people in full strength in the cup of his anger And those people will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels. By the way, Haggai, same thing, same description. The holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, these people are going to be eternally condemned. And so naturally, the angel can then say, look, this is what happens if you take the mark. So don't take the mark. Instead, persevere, no matter how bad it gets. Even if you lose your life, lay down your life for what you say you believe because the alternative is incredibly, eternally bad. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And then for those people who believe that the torment of God is limited, that it happens for a limited amount of time and then annihilation takes place, The angel describes it this way. Those who are in this torment forever and ever have no rest day or night. So he just used the words every day, every night, forever to describe the torment that they are under because of the wrath of God. I don't know how to eliminate or excuse that language. I don't know how to say anything except eternal conscious torment because that's what the Bible says and that's what Jesus described and that's what an angel is declaring to planet Earth in order to keep the last of the saints on the planet persevering in the faith. So here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus And I heard a voice from heaven say, and now he's going to hand out what is technically a beatitude. The same way that Jesus said, blessed are, blessed are these types of people. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after the righteousness of God. Blessed, blessed. Now the angel is going to declare a blessing on a particular type of people at that moment in time. It's better to lay down your life following the commandments of God and your faith in Jesus Christ rather than take the mark. So write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. In other words, as they lay down their lives, 
when they show up in heaven, the fact that they persevered and that they were willing to die for their testimony of Christ, that is going to follow them and they will be suitably rewarded eternally in heaven. The contrast is eternal reward for laying down your life or eternal conscious punishment in the wrath of God. Pick one. And yet there are going to be people, because we're also told in the Bible that in the last days, there are going to be people who just fall away from the faith. There are going to be people who just give up. Look, the world is going to continue to be corrupt and sinful. After what we read last week of the birth pangs that are going to continue to get worse and worse on the planet, it's going to become increasingly difficult to be a Christian here on planet Earth. And there are going to be plenty of people, marginal Christians, pew dwellers, people who are just warming a bench somewhere. There are going to be plenty of people who go to church for what they get out of it because they've got taekwondo or classes for the kids or smoke machines and fancy lighting and they're competing for the entertainment dollar that the world has. There are going to be people who go to church for all that, who when it gets rough and the difficulty finally reaches them, they're going to bail out. Now, John, of course, tells us they went out from us because they were never of us. Had they been of us, they would have remained with us. But we're also told that there is going to be this general just departure from the faith. And that departure of the faith is going to increase and increase and from what we've just read, it's very clear that there's only two options as a result of the choices we make here in this lifetime right now. Follow Christ, be willing to lay down your life for Christ, and then your works follow you, and you become part of eternal glory, where, by the way, there's no more sickness, no more death, and God will wipe away every tear. To me, sounds really good. Or... You go to the eternal conscious punishment under the full weight, unmixed, of the wrath of God. Sounds to me like really bad. So follow Christ sounds like the only reasonable option there. One time Barney Johnson was standing here, and I'm, I'm going to steal a phrase from him, because he said, if you can follow Christ... Follow Christ. That's right. If you can, if you have the ability to do it, by all means, do it. Because there's a whole world out there that is increasingly showing themselves, demonstrating themselves to be completely anti-Christian. And they are ultimately going to take the mark of the beast and worship the beast for the same reason that they used to go to church. For whatever they get out of it. You know, if I take the mark, I get to live. If I take the mark, I get to buy and sell. I get access to my money again. If I bow down in front of the idol, I get to continue being at peace here in the world. And that's going to sound really attractive to the flesh of a whole lot of people. And so, naturally, these people who are still left on the planet... These Israelites who are still here awaiting that Jesus would come and establish the kingdom, 
the pressure on them is going to be immense. And yet they are told by the angel, if you turn your back on God, you're going to fall under his unstoppable, eternal torment. Or, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And yes, says the Spirit, so that they can rest from their labors. Boy, if you're in this planet, if you're on this world, and you're having to deal with just staying alive for another day, day after day after day, and then finally they catch up with you, and finally they kill you, that's a rest from your labors when you finally get to heaven. When you open your eyes and see Jesus, that is a rest from your labors. But the labor is worth it. Because the end result is eternal glory with God. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. All right, so we're going to spend the rest of the morning talking about reaping, because that's the next thing that is announced here. The next thing that John sees is Angels and Jesus himself reaping the planet. Now, granted, Jesus talks about the harvest being plentiful when he's talking to his apostles. And he says, look, the fields are white. They're ripe. They're ready to be reaped. They're ready to be harvested. And when he said that, he was speaking in a positive sense. I am convinced that at that moment he was saying... We need to send workers into the field because the harvest is plentiful. But there is also so much language in the Bible of reaping that is bad language. In other words, it is a description of a time when God himself is going to mow down his enemies with his everlasting power and his angelic forces who are going to just tear the planet down. That is also referred to as reaping. Jesus talked about it. Joel talked about it in the Old Testament. And you see it here in the book of Revelation. So it's thematic in the Bible, this idea of reaping at the end of the age. So let's read, starting at verse 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud... And sitting on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, having a golden crown on his head. Who's that? Jesus. It's obviously Jesus. He's the only one who goes by the name Son of Man, who also is on a cloud with a crown on his head. And so then seeing him, you would think, oh, good, this is Jesus coming back, except that he's also holding one other instrument. He's holding a sharp sickle in his hand and another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud crying to him put in your sickle and reap because the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe now, by the way the Greek word that is translated ripe in that verse actually means withered or overripe and so obviously, this is different than Jesus sending his apostles out into the world to bring about a harvest of souls into the church. 
this is very different because Christians, first off, are never referred to as withered and overripe. You should be happy you've never been called that. In other words, what the angel is saying is, it's time. It's past time. The world now is so corrupt that it has lived too long. It has gone on too far. Now, notice that Jesus has a sickle, and then the angel is the one who is saying to him, put in your sickle and do that. Go in and reap Despite the fact that, like I said, you can go all the way back to the book of Joel and you can see that this event is coming. In other words, this is a prophesied event that even Jesus talks about and then finally the time comes for him to do it. He is fulfilling prophecy. He is doing exactly what God said he was going to do and at the same time he has an angel beckoning him, calling on him to do the very thing he knows he's going to do. Put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came to the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel The one who has power over fire, we saw him earlier, came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle saying, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vines of the earth because her grapes are overripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. That's how we know for certain that he's not talking about something positive at this moment. This particular series of sickles, this particular reaping, is for the purpose of reaping the enemies of God and casting them into the winepress of the wrath of God. Like I said, this is something that's been predicted. This is not a surprise. It's not something that when you're reading the book of Revelation and you bump into this, it's not new information. If you know your Bible, you know that this is simply the culmination of something that has already been prophesied, already been talked about, already been described. So go in the Old Testament to the book of Joel. And we're going to go to Joel chapter 3. Now, considering that Jesus and these angels are reaping planet Earth, we can safely assume that they are not reaping the uh, saints of Israel who are being protected, who are going to persevere into the kingdom. So who is being reaped? Well, the nations of the earth, the Gentiles. All those who have ever been enemy of God and Jerusalem, they are the ones who are going to be reaped. And that's exactly what Joel tells us. Joel chapter 3 verse 9, call out this message among the nations, among the Goy, among the Gentiles. Here's the message. Set yourselves apart for a war and rouse up your mighty men. 
Let all the men of war approach. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords. Make your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a mighty man. In other words, everybody get ready to fight. Whatever weapons you can find, God is calling everybody to the final war. We haven't come across it yet in the book of Revelation, but I'm sure you're all familiar with the word Armageddon. Yes. It comes from Har-Megiddo. It's the valley where this final war is going to take place. It has just been transliterated into the English language as Armageddon. You can use it in a sentence as Armageddon out of here because <laughs> it's bad war and uh, I got to go. So here Joel is describing God himself calling the nations to his war and saying, prepare yourselves. If you've got nothing but a pruning hook, make it into a spear. Whatever you've got, create a weapon because I'm bringing war against you. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. Surrounding what? Israel. Surrounding Jerusalem, surrounding Israel, absolutely. So hurry up and come to my war all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves. There, bring down, O Yahweh, your mighty ones. Okay, so he said to the nations, bring your mighty ones, bring your soldiers. Even bring the weak ones and let them pretend to be mighty men. Everybody's coming to my war. And who's on the other side? God and his angels, his mighty ones. Let the nations, says verse 12, let the nations be roused up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, or literally that name means Yahweh judges, because they're being brought here to this final cataclysmic judgment of God. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Then look at verse 13. Send in the sickle. Same language as in the book of Revelation. Send in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Same description. The time has come, the moment has come, when God is going to reap the earth. And come and tread, for the winepress is full, and the vats overflow, because their evil is great. Okay, now that overflowing of the vats, the winepress of God is also described in the book of Revelation. But it's described this way. The great winepress was trodden down outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Okay, when John says that, he's just describing what Joel has already described. Let the nations be roused up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, or God judges. For there I will sit in judgment on all the surrounding nations. Send in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the wine press is full, the vats overflow, because their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes. Now, the translation I'm reading here, the NASB says, multitudes in the valley of decision. And I cannot tell you how many Arminian sermons I have heard in my life that just take that particular verse out of context to try to encourage people to make a decision for Christ. 
And then they call that being in the valley of decision. Except they don't understand what the text is about. The context is not about Christians choosing Jesus. The context is about God judging the nations in the winepress of his wrath. And the word that is translated decision is about God doing the deciding. Literally, the word is verdict. This is the valley of judgment in which God is rendering his verdict. You get the picture? Mm -hmm. Multitudes, multitudes. Yeah, there's a whole lot of them. And we've just been told that their evil is great. So there are multitudes in the valley of God's verdict. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of verdict. You never hear anybody when asking people to make a decision for Jesus. You never see them read on to that. You have to look at it in context and understand that this is God handing out his verdict, handing out his judgment. He's doing it in the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means Yahweh is judging because he's sitting in judgment on the surrounding nations. And the next thing that happens in verse 15 are the same cosmic events that we've seen Jesus talk about, we've seen Peter talk about, we see in the book of Revelation, the sun and the moon grow dark. Those are the characteristics of the day of the Lord consistently throughout the Bible. The sun and the moon grow dark. The stars lose their brightness. And Yahweh roars from Zion. From Zion? We just heard that Jesus and his 144,000 were in Zion. Because Zion is Jerusalem, is the mountain of Jerusalem. And God himself is roaring from Jerusalem at the surrounding nations of the Gentiles who have made themselves enemy of God and Jerusalem. Yahweh roars from Zion, and he gives forth his voice from Jerusalem. Is that pretty clear? Sure is. Doesn't seem complicated, does it? And the heavens and the earth will quake. But Yahweh is a refuge for his people and a strong defense to the sons of Israel. This is within the context of the day of the Lord. This is in the context of the sun and the moon growing dark. And here again, we see the same contrast that we see in the book of Revelation, that God is judging the nations who are the enemies of Israel, and he's protecting his saints. They are going to persevere because he is going to empower them to go through this time that is judgment on the nations and protection for them. Joel said it, Jesus said it, Revelation says it, we pretty much ought to get it by now. Mm. Yahweh is a refuge for his people and a strong defense to the people of Israel, to the sons of Israel. And then, you, you who? You who? Sorry. <laughs> So glad you laughed at that. Had you left me hanging up here, I would have felt such a fool. But who is he talking about? You will know. He's talking to Israel. And you will know that I am Yahweh, your God. When you see me judge the nations and protect you and establish Jerusalem, when you see my son return, just like Zechariah predicted, you're going to weep over him when you see the one that you have pierced. 
And God is going to give them the spirit of supplication so that they're going to mourn over him and over their own sins the way that a mother weeps over her only child. That's all biblical language that's all describing the exact same thing, the exact same moment, the restoration, the perseverance of Israel, the destruction of their enemies and the nations that surround them. Yahweh is a refuge to his people, and he is a strong defense to the sons of Israel. And then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God. And where does he dwell? I'm dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so Jerusalem will be holy. He just used Zion, holy mountain, and Jerusalem in one statement. So where is he talking about? Doesn't seem difficult, does it? So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. Go to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. I'm going to start reading in verse 24. There's so much here that I would like to talk about. This is after Jesus has told the parable of the sower and then explained it. Very helpful when Jesus explains his own parables, which he's going to do again here. Starting at verse 24, he's going to tell the parable of the wheat and the tares. He presented another parable to them. By the way, this is the context in which his disciples ask him, why do you speak to them in parables? And then he says something that is completely counterintuitive to the way this world thinks. Jesus says, I speak in parables because it's given to you to understand, but not to them. So I speak to them in parables lest they understand and I would heal them. That's Jesus just talking election all over the place and saying, you, the elect, you, the choice, you understand. I can tell you the parable and you'll get it. But I speak in parables and don't speak plainly to those that are outside so that they don't get it. Jesus keeping people from understanding the truth. I find that amazing. All right. I just had to throw that in in a very Calvinistic sort of way. (laughs) He presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds in it, tares in it. Sowed tares also among the wheat, and then he went away. And when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then came up all these weeds, all these tares that are choking off the good plants and the good food? Verse 28, and he said to them, an enemy has done this. And the servants said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? So do you want us to go through and tear all the tares out of your field? But he said to them, no. Lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, 
First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, now you don't even have to guess at what Jesus was getting at. Now he speaks of the mustard seed and he speaks of leaven and then starting at verse 36, we read, then he left the multitudes and he went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Oh, good. We don't have to interpret it. Jesus is going to tell us what it means. Here's his explanation. And he said to them, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Jesus himself says, I'm the one who sowed the good seed. The field is the world, the whole world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one. Okay, so throughout the New Testament, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. He is the ruler of the darkness of this world. And we both exist side by side. The saints of God, the good seed planted by Jesus, live here on planet Earth next to the evil of this world. And I know I have often thought, why doesn't God just wipe out the evil part? He can. He has the almighty sovereign power. Why doesn't he just wipe out the evil stuff and leave us here to live in peace? Well, here's Jesus' explanation for it. The tares are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed those evil ones is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Everything we're reading in Revelation, Jesus talked about in advance. So no surprise that John would see things play out exactly that way because Joel predicted it. Jesus verified it, and then John foresaw it. And they all put it in the time of the day of the Lord, in the time of the end. The end of the age is going to be when the tares are finally going to be gathered up and burned with fire. Look at verse 40. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire... So it shall be at the end of the age. He's now used the term end of the age twice. He knows when this is going to happen. He knows what he's talking about. Verse 41, the son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. And he will cast them into the furnace of fire and in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun. Where? In, in heaven? No, in the kingdom. Importantly, when Jesus is saying this, when he's laying out this scenario, when he's laying out this parable, who is he talking to? talking to Jews, he's talking to Israel, he's talking to his apostles privately here. Mm -hmm. And so when he talks about 
the righteous who come forth as the son in the kingdom of their father, they're hearing everything that Daniel ever predicted about the kingdom to come. They're hearing Jesus say to them, when you pray, pray, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And what's the result of that? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Currently, this earth is wheat and tares. Currently, God's will, can I get a witness, is not being done on earth the way it is in heaven. But the day is coming when that's going to happen. The demonstration of it is that Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom. All of the Old Testament prophets, without fail, every one of the Old Testament prophets predicts the kingdom to come. And they all say it belongs to Israel and that God is going to regather them from all the places that he scattered them. He's going to take them from among the Gentiles, bring them back to their land. David's greater son is going to sit on his throne and that all the Gentile nations are going to flow to Jerusalem. This is the universal across the board explanation from the Old Testament prophets. Jesus gets to the planet, validates that that's all true because after all he says, I didn't come To abolish the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill it. After all, we're told that in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. So therefore, all the promises of God that are established in the Old Testament are going to come true through Christ, who is going to come back to the planet in order to establish his kingdom. And that's the way he always describes it. Tribulation first, time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, culminating in the day of the Lord, terrible time on planet earth. He preserves his people, cuts those days short, and then establishes his kingdom in which the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. If you have ears, hear it. Now there's a whole lot of people on the planet right now who profess Christ, who profess to believe their Bibles, but for some reason just can't seem to hear that. The prophets say it. Jesus validates it. John, the prophet in the New Testament, describes it. And yet for some reason there's people who just don't want to hear it. And Jesus knew that was going to happen. And so he says, he who has ears... Let him hear what I'm saying. Now, granted, he's saying this is the explanation of the parable, and you are the ones who are given the ability to hear it, so you need to hear it. But it is also written down for our education, for our understanding, because Christianity, modern, current, Gentile-based Christianity is just one portion of the larger plan of God. And God is going to fulfill absolutely every word of everything he predicted in the Bible, or he's not God. And the Bible's a lie, and we can all go home because there's a lot of sinning left to do. Or every single word that proceeds from the mouth of God is our nourishment, is our life is the bread that we feast on. And we don't get to deny or discount any part of the Bible. Therefore, we have to say, yes, we're saved by Jesus. Yes, we are brought in, grafted in to the new covenant that was not naturally ours. 
Get this right. Every covenant in the Bible, look it up. Prove me wrong, because you can't. Every single covenant in the Bible was made with Israel. And that includes the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, recited in Hebrews 8, starts with the new covenant to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then we Gentiles, it is described of us that we are grafted into it because it's not ours by nature. In other words, God is telling a very continuous story about his faithfulness to all his people. He's faithful to you. He's faithful to Israel. If he's not faithful to Israel, you have no confidence he's going to be faithful to you. That's right. Because then he's capricious. Then he can say things, make promises to particular people, and then change his mind. I don't know about you. I don't want a God that changes his mind. I want a God who says, I've loved you with an everlasting love, and then that's it. Period. End of sentence. Don't change your mind. Because if it's left up to me, I'm going to mess it up. I'm so grateful that it is left up to an eternally loving God who does whatever he wants to do. And what he wants to do is save his people. And his people throughout the Bible includes us and Israel. And you can't discount that. Does it make sense? Yes, sir. And through that lens... You can understand everything in Revelation, and you can understand the reaping that's coming, and you can understand the declarations of the perseverance of the saints of God. You can understand what these angels are announcing, and once you understand it, you can say, thank God, because the angels are worshiping. Heaven is breaking out in worship. As God pours out his judgment, just thank God you're not going to fall under the wrath of that God. You get it? Yes. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.